This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Today, we'll talk about soil health with Dr. Abby Wick. I do think that people need to be aware of how they're going to keep that residue on the surface, and, and probably it's with the, the crops they're growing in between those pulse crops in rotation. Uh, they could build up some of the residue. But yeah, it's exciting. I think there's a ton of potential with pulse crops. And fortunately, we can grow them here in the Northern Plains. So I think we're in a great position here to do some really cool things with soil health and pulse. At the time we recorded this interview, Dr. Abby Wick was Associate Professor and Extension Soil Health Specialist at North Dakota State University. Now, she has since gone on to a new role after nearly 12 years at NDSU. She's now the Global Soil Health Education Program Lead at Syngenta. Abby and I today are going to talk about what's motivating more and more farmers to want to try new practices on their farms to improve their soil health, some of the barriers to adopting these practices, and the support and resources available for anyone looking to learn more about soil health. We also discuss a new approach that some food companies are involved with to spread the word about soil health through certified crop advisors, which is called the Trusted Advisor Partnership. They're doing a pilot this year in North Dakota. And of course, we'll talk about pulse crops specifically and the important role they play in rotations to build healthier soil. In a lot of ways, Abby has been on the front lines of the soil health movement, if I can call it that. I asked her what's changed over these past 12 years that she was at NDSU as interest has grown in soil health. It's been an interesting journey. I feel like at the start of my position here at NDSU, I was really having to convince people of the importance of these practices and trying to seek them out as far as the growers that were you know, either on the fence line about it or had started doing some of these practices or maybe have been doing a long term. Those are, you know, those farmers are few and far between. Right. I mean, they're they're all over the state in very isolated areas. But now I feel like I don't have to convince anyone anymore that this is a good thing to try or to at least explore and look at on a field by field basis. So that's a good feeling that people are just generally interested. They're curious about it. Maybe not looking to dive all in, but at least try some soil health building practices on, on maybe a quarter of land or something nobody can see. None of the neighbors will drive by it, but it's on the backfield. So that's, that's a good feeling. And how would you characterize sort of like the, the state of soil health in North Dakota today as far as what are on the top of people's minds and kind of how has the conversation evolved from, like you said, early days, which is why should we do this? Why should we care to how would you characterize it today? I would characterize with a ton of creativity. When we initially started, it was about, you know, having wheat in rotation so you could put a diverse cover crop mix after wheat. And for a lot of farmers in North Dakota, that wasn't going to be an option for them. Either they didn't have the moisture late in the season or they didn't have the time to get the cover crop seeded or they, you know, they didn't have wheat in rotation. So I think it's gone from this very general like entry point of soil health practices into this just really creative place where farmers are not only, you know, looking at interseeding corn, but flying on cover crops into soybean and growing cover crops for seed production or doing intercropping and growing two crops at once uh, to get that diversity in their system. So I think it's just really opened up a lot of creativity in our region. And I'm really proud of the, the growers that I work with because of that creativity. They're always thinking of, of new ways to make practices work, to fit their logistics, something that they can certainly do long-term. You know, they're not ever looking at the short-term game. Uh, most of people working in soil health, but the long-term, and can they do that practice for multiple years, not just this year? Right. And what have you found to be the, uh, and I'm sure this is different for everybody, but but kind of like what turns the light bulb on for somebody that's maybe been you know, not worried about this their entire farming career. And now they kind of want to do something that, you know, what, what tends to be the motivation for that? Oh, um, wow. 
what is the motive? I think it's, it's so different across growers. I think a big one for them, if you're looking at it from a soil standpoint, erosion. So if they're seeing their soils blow away or wash away with, you know, in the springtime with, with some high precipitation events, that that bothers them. And I think they were just tired of seeing their soils blow away. I also think we have salinity in our area. And so 90% of the growers in North Dakota have some kind of salinity in their fields. And this salt issue is really frustrating because for those growers, they're, they're seeding across those acres and they're getting the same result of a poor crop stand in those areas year after year after year. And I'm sure, you know, when you're putting in all these inputs and not getting anything out of it, you really start to question what could be done differently. And that's where some of these soil health practices could come into play with, you know, residue on the surface to help reduce evaporation, which keeps the salts lower in the profile, using a perennial perhaps in some of those areas, that's been kind of a popular option. So I think, you know, from like a standpoint of soil, those have been the entry points. But I think on a human side, there's a community around this that I think growers want to be part of. And to have that support now, not only from the university or from crop advisors who are interested in this or conservation districts or NRCS groups, but they want to be part of that community because they want to be creative and they want to be thinking through the problems and solving problems on their farm. And now they have people to do that with. And so I think that's been a huge uh, motivator for soil health. And I know a big part of your job has been to try to build sort of support networks, that community part you referred to. Can you talk about that a little bit about, you know, the transfer of agricultural knowledge? It's great to have podcasts like this and to have workshops, but you know, what really seems to help is is sort of creating the infrastructure for support. Maybe talk about things that have worked in that area and and maybe if there are any areas where you'd like to see more of it. Yeah, I, th- I think support is a necessity when adopting new practices in agriculture, especially when uh, you're dealing with operating loans and high risk. You need a community that's going to support you. And I think, you know, our community here around Soil Health really started, I guess, with maybe it was a self-serving reason because I didn't have anything to do with agriculture prior to accepting this position at NDSU. And I recognized that I needed to learn about everything, pretty much equipment, farm size, management, operations, everything, family dynamics. I needed to learn all that. And I wasn't going to learn it by watching YouTube or by attending a seminar or reading a book. And I think that's where that sense of community really comes in is that a lot of these discussions happen around tables and at conversations and and kind of going into it, admitting that you may not know everything that you need to know, but you're you're willing to learn. And then it's kind of this this learning alongside each other. And it's a really incredible thing that builds strong relationships and support for everyone when we all kind of recognize that there are things that we don't know and ways that we're willing to invest our time and our resources into learning those things from other people. So yeah, I think that's kind of where this is kind of started. Some of the ways that we kind of built that community in the beginning were primarily having it farmer-based for the first 10 years was really, we were focused on farmers and that community, you know, limiting the number of maybe NRCS people that could attend a meeting. We, we tell the local office, you know, send one person and they can share this information with the rest at the office or one NDSU extension person versus having, you know, all the surrounding county agents there. And I think, you know, creating that community that was farmer-based was really important for those farmers to feel comfortable. You know, maybe one of the things I would have changed in the past, I would have been more open to the crop advisors because one of the things that our data told us from all these cafe talks and small group meetings that we were doing was that, you know, there were a few crop advisors attending and they can reach a heck of a lot of acres, but they were never our target audience. And I think we missed the boat on a lot of things the first 10 years by not being more inclusive to crop advisors. But now we are. Our focus is on crop advisors. So I think we're making up for the mistakes in the past. 
Yeah. Talk about that, that new focus on crop advisors. You already kind of gave the case of why it's important, but maybe talk about what, what you've done about it. Well, we basically decided that we need a program for crop advisors to connect and network. And so we did build a trusted advisor partnership, which was an investment of food and beverage companies into educational opportunities and networking opportunities for certified crop advisors in North Dakota. So, you know, we, we realized that their time is limited. They don't have the luxury of, of going down rabbit holes of information, um, especially if it's not science based. So we've created content for them that's a guided rabbit hole, right? They could go as deep as they want into it, but the depth of it is all going to be around science. And it's going to be, you know, work that's backed up and minimal risk in adopting these practices. And so we've created that inventory of information for them to get into. Uh, but then also that community and trying to bring like-minded crop advisors together where, you know, if they would go to meetings too, like farmers would, where they'd bring up some idea about soil health and everybody would be like, oh, why, why is that guy talking again? Or why are they, why is she bringing up this idea of cover crops when it's really not important? And so we're creating that community for them where they can bring those things up and they can talk about, you know, whatever crazy ideas, or they could talk about ways that they're you know, implementing some of these practices in a low risk way with their growers and even the process behind guiding a grower into adoption of, of some of these practices. So, so yeah, now it's, it's their time to get our attention. And, and I think uh, the first 12 people that have gone through the program have really appreciated it. It's been a lot of fun to work with them. That is really cool. Such a cool program. Well, I, I know on the other side of it, though, from the crop advisors are these food companies and, and they're, you know, they're a big driver of this program as well because they want to see, you know, soil health building practices work and be successful and be sustainable. Could you talk about this interest coming from the food company side? You know, we, we talked a little bit about how the grower perception has evolved over the years. What about these food companies and, and uh, maybe what are your thoughts on food companies becoming more involved in soil health building practices? And what a what a group with a lot of power, I think, you know, moving into the into soil health, right? They've got financial resources, they have a lot of intelligence, they have markets for different crops that are grown in with soil health practices. But at the same token, when you look at all the power that they have within their companies, oftentimes I think they're still the underdog, right? I mean, they're, they're just like all these farmers using soil health practices. They're still kind of the underdog there doing something a little bit different and, and justifying their, their worth or their purpose or their reason for doing something. And I think that the food and beverage sustainability teams, incredibly smart, motivated people whose hearts are in the right place. For sure, but they're having to justify why that money within that company is being spent on farmers or on securing their supply chain and why that's important. And so I think especially for, you know, influencing a group, which these companies are trying to do, they're trying to, to work with farmers who maybe operate at a slower rate of change because their livelihoods are at stake and it's a family farm and they're a fifth generation and God forbid they're the one that that farm ends on. But companies move at fast pace, right? They want to see all these sustainability initiatives adopted by, what is it, 2030? And that really isn't that far away. So they're moving at a fast pace. You've got the growers working at a slower pace just because of the nature of the practices or the process. And here they're all working together on this to see eye to eye and to really understand what each other need and to, to make that happen through their crop advisors. That's pretty cool. As you look ahead for soil health, and, and you could answer this from a food company perspective or a farmer perspective or both if you'd like, 
you know, we've come a long way from like, hey, you guys should really, you know, consider these soil health building practices and, and maybe this soil health stuff is important to now where we are today. What are the next barriers to getting to kind of the next point in the in the evolution of soil health? You know, what do you think are the next sort of sticking points that we'll need to get through in the coming years? I think there are going to be quite a few sticking points and I don't want to be a, a pessimist, but if we're looking at the adoption of these practices to make systems more resilient and, you know, to climate change, I think we need to consider that, that the climate is changing and that could adjust the way farmers do these practices. So the, you know, the, the permanence of these practices on farms could be, could be a challenge in the future. We're looking at an incredibly wet and late spring here in North Dakota right now. You know, what happens to some of these reduced till practices when you have a wet spring versus a dry spring? or wet harvest versus a dry harvest, or can you get cover crops established in a drought? And so I think just the nature of trying to make our systems more resilient in a time where the climate is changing, it's almost like we're, we're a little bit late to the game. Like we, we could have been doing this earlier and then had all these things in place, but we're, we're trying to do it simultaneously now. And I think that's going to create some challenges moving forward or, you know, nothing that we can't overcome, but I think it's going to throw a few wrenches in, in the way we do things and some of the permanence of the of the practice adoption might be might be challenged. Yeah. And, and what about, you know, I mean, you bring up an excellent point where some of these practices, the farmers are trying to do them for the very first time in an environment that is probably changing. What ideas or what types of sort of recommendations come to mind of how we might build the resilience into the into the spread of soil health? I think a lot of it's just kind of come in the form of give yourself a break. I think, you know, because of the way these these practices are set up, right, that they need to be permanent. But I think the companies are realizing this, too, that the flexibility is really important in this system. And if we're looking at long term adoption, we're going to have to give ourselves a break every once in a while to do some tillage to repair ruts or to, you know, shift our rotations so that we can get something planted in a timely manner. And, and I think if farmers can go into this saying, I don't have to be a purist, I can cut myself a little slack. If those companies look at it in the same way and say, yes, our desire is to have these acres permanently adopted into these practices. But the most important thing is that a crop gets planted. And if a farmer needs that flexibility to to do a little bit of tillage right before planting to warm things up or to get the you know good seed bed, then we're going to have to be flexible and make it so that it works for both sides. So I would just say everybody's got to give themselves a break on this because it's going to be tough. Well, I would imagine at some point along like a soil health journey, a farmer probably starts to get more and more interested in looking at crop diversification as sort of a nature-based way to manage things like pests and diseases and just kind of continue to build resiliency into the into the system without more mechanical or chemical interventions, I would imagine. Is there a specific point when that happens? And where I'm going with this is like, when might somebody consider pulse crops that maybe wasn't growing it before because it might be additive to their system? I think anytime a grower is looking at adding diversity through their cash crop rotation, that that's a wonderful thing. I think that's probably the best way instead of trying to squeeze in cover crops before or after the cash crop, just bring your diversity in through your rotation. And, you know, I could see some real benefits. And, you know, though it's a disadvantage for these, you know, pulse crops having low residue after harvest, I could also see that as an advantage for somebody moving into a reduced till system or into some of these soil health management practices as an opportunity to not have to manage a ton of residue like they would after wheat harvest, especially if they cut low and the wheat residues everywhere. So I can see some benefit just, you know, in rotation with pulse crops. 
I mean, pulses are also the ones that they go to for uh, the intercropping and growing two crops at once. I think that's a really creative way to create a disease break in your system and some of those synergies that go along with, with growing two crops at once. So I think, uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity in, in looking at including something like pulse crops in, in a soil health type system. And uh, can you talk about some of the work being done on intercropping? Uh, are you involved in that from a soil health standpoint? I, I know we've talked to like Lana up in Canada, and then I think maybe Mike Osley was doing some work in, in North Dakota on like the agronomic side of like, hey, can this work? And then would this be a good idea? What about from a soil health benefit standpoint? You know, what do you see as the benefits there? Or is it really just about kind of introducing diversity where you can? I haven't specifically looked at much with the, you know, from the soil side of intercropping, probably because the funding would be a challenge to, to try to get the, the money to support that type of work. You know, in, in a general concept of thinking of the importance of diversity, I don't refer back to native systems very often, but in this case I will, because if you're thinking about, you know, all these different root structures in the soil that you would maybe be trying to get with a, a diverse cover crop mix, but now you can get it for a longer period of time with your cash crops and have two you know, two different root structures associated with two different plants, possibly three. I mean, I know there's some farmers doing like three different crops out there, which I don't know how they keep track of that. But, you know, you're just inherently adding in this diversity for a longer period of time in your operation. I think there's a a huge benefit to that that we may never fully understand. But I think I think we know enough to to know that the soils are complex. The plant interactions are very complex. And that complexity is a great way to trick diseases and pests by making the system less predictable. And so uh, the more we do that, the more resilient I think our systems become. Great. Well, I'm going to kind of bring a lot of things we talked about together into one question, which is, you know, what in your mind can pulse crop producers and and really the pulse crop industry do to better promote soil health and maybe tell the story of of how important pulses are uh, to building healthier soils? That is a great question. And um, I think that encouraging farmers who are growing pulse crops or those who are managing them to stay creative in their use of those pulse crops, I think is is probably where I would be on this and kind of moving forward is just to think about, you know, they know that system better than anyone. And so think about the opportunities for where there might be a gap where you could fill that time with something like a cover crop. And then, you know, if you're using that cover crop, do you plant it in strips so you can plant your cash crop between, or do you solid seed it? And post-harvest, you need something that grows quickly, or is it okay if it grows a little slower? If it overwinters, is that okay for that system? So I would just encourage them to look at their systems with a fresh set of eyes and uh, and think about what opportunities might exist there that are going to help them, especially with that disease break and their pulse crops in rotation. Great. Well, what what else, you know, to a group of pulse crop growers and researchers, you know, what else would you want to share about pulses and, and soil health? You know, I, I guess I would encourage people to be a little bit cautious because pulse crops are generally low residue. And I think I think that can open the system up for erosion. And so I do think that people need to be aware of how they're going to keep that residue on the surface. And, and probably it's with the, the crops that are growing in between those pulse crops and rotation. They could build up some of the residue. But I do think there are some shortcomings, right? I mean, maybe not as robust root systems. And so, you know, thinking about how that influences soil aggregation or the microbial communities in the soil, if you don't have as robust of a root system going in, you know, deep into the soil profile. So I think there's some things just to be aware of and to keep your eye on or to really think about in your system and then figure out how you're going to make up for that gap or that hole. 
But yeah, it's exciting. I think there's a ton of potential with pulse crops. And fortunately, we can grow them here in the Northern Plains. And I feel I feel bad for some of those places where they can't grow pulse crops because there's no market or the climate doesn't support that. So I think we're in a great position here in the Northern Plains to do some really cool things with soil health and pulse. All right. Well, what what big questions about soil health are on your mind going forward? It could be pulse related or not. Just uh, what are the burning questions on your mind that uh, we'll need to answer in the coming decade uh, in soil health? Oh, I think there's so many questions. I think one, and this is fresh in my mind, uh, just because I've been working with the food and beverage companies more, is really figuring out the communication that happens and what needs to be communicated between you know, our industry groups, our food and beverage companies and farmers, what needs to be shared there? What are the disconnects that are, I guess, making farmers hesitant to sign up for carbon programs or understand what's being done on the industry side of things? I I just feel so badly every time I go to a meeting and I hear this lack of understanding on both sides of what needs to be done by the other group. And I'm just, I'm curious what that's going to look like in the future and how that that information and that sharing of information can be improved. And maybe it is through the crop advisors. Maybe we're starting that process now through the trusted advisor partnership and that, you know, getting that communication to flow more freely between the groups. But I, yeah, I think that's one of my big questions moving forward is how can we facilitate those discussions and make them more effective and quicker, right? We don't have a lot of time, so we need to be moving forward pretty quickly on these things. So yeah, I think in my my role, that's what I would like to figure out in the next decade but we'll see it's a tricky one awesome all right abby that is great uh anything else and and maybe a good closing question is if somebody's hearing this stuff for the first time they're like hey i thought we were going to talk about pulses and i I don't know anything about the soil health stuff where should we send them or where's a good place for them to start to kind of just learn more about you know some of the the principles of soil health and and what practices might be right for them there's some great resources. Um, certainly the North Dakota State University Soil Health webpage. There's also a YouTube channel. So if you search NDSU Soil Health, you'll get all that information. There's also some great organizations uh, that are working towards soil health. Certainly the NRCS and the Soil Conservation Districts being two of those organizations. So if you want to talk to somebody in person about this, you can go into an extension office um, or you can go in and, and meet with your conservation district or your NRCS person. There's also the Midwest Cover Crops Council. Uh, They've got some great information across several states on soil health and specifically cover crops. Um, So that's a a great place to go. I'm sure there's some big ones I'm missing, but like the North Central Region Sustainable Ag Research and Education or SARE has incredible resources. Certainly the Soil Sense podcast, I turn people over there because I think we give a lot of great information and tell a lot of great stories on that. You know, just... As you're looking for information, make sure that it's science-based and that it's not just some idea that's randomly put out there for a limited number of acres that you go on a whim and try it. Make sure that it's tested across different places and then critically think through it as to whether that's a good fit for your farm or not. All right. Well, thank you very much to Dr. Abby Wick for joining us for today's episode. I hope there was some useful information there that you can think about for your own soil health journey. We'll leave links in the show notes for the resources she mentioned, so I encourage you to check those out. Also, make sure you are a subscriber to this show so you don't miss our next episode with Eric Barch of AGT Foods talking about the market for pulse-based ingredients. There's a lot of things that we've had to establish. Protein checking in peas was 
non-existent you know 20 years ago now it's where we're checking protein on every load so it's things like that that we're having to go through as an industry to be able to supply some of the high-end markets that we are today but as an industry globally we've you know embraced this whole concept and ideas the you know pulses as an ingredient and you know the opportunity in that space and there's been a lot of research a lot of development work towards that whole space. You know, a lot of major investments in protein manufacturing plants, in processing, in food manufacturing plants that are incorporating pulses is, you know, really at an all-time high and continues to, to grow. Again, make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss that upcoming episode. The Growing Pulse Crops podcast series is overseen by the Pulse Crops Working Group with funding from the Northern Pulse Growers Association, the North Central IPM Center, USDA NIFA, and the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council. We're releasing these episodes twice per month throughout the season, and we want to make sure the information stays relevant to you. So if you're finding it useful, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or both. And feel free to tweet us by using the hashtag Growing Pulse Crops. We'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks.